Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Jeff Hausenbold, a managing director for the last four years at SoftBank Investment Advisors, where he led one of the six investment teams that deployed the $100 billion SoftBank Vision Fund. Prior to joining SoftBank, Jeff worked at 16 companies, including 11 years as CEO of Shutterfly, four years in the early days of eBay, four as a special industry advisor to KKR, and one as entrepreneur-in-residence at Sutter Hill Ventures. He's also served on the boards of dozens of companies, including Caesars Entertainment, Memphis Meats, DoorDash, Compass, Open Door, WAG, and Groupon. Our conversation starts with Jeff's true rags-to-riches story, 
and then turns to a whirlwind of lessons learned as an operator at eBay during its hypergrowth and Shutterfly overseeing a successful turnaround. We then dive into the SoftBank Vision Fund, including the original investment thesis, sourcing ideas, valuation discipline, decision-making in groups, portfolio structure, and results. We close by talking about the SPAC market, capital market expectations, the characteristics of successful organizations, and succession planning. Please enjoy the countless nuggets of wisdom in my conversation with Jeff Hausenbold. Jeff, thanks so much for doing this with me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I always love to start at the beginning, and I noticed, and you seem sure open about it, referencing a difficult childhood. And would love to know what that means in your eyes. Yeah, I think we're all products of our experiences. And I was born into a family of five in Brooklyn, New York. My dad had a seventh grade education. He could barely read and couldn't keep a job. And when he had a job, he was a truck driver in and out of jail when I was growing up. And so that kind of had a large impact, as you can imagine, on me. And one of the things that my mom did was really emphasize get a good education. And so I worked hard at school and got into college, first generation to go to college. And that really changed my lot in life. I went from the bottom 10% to the top 1%. And what I tell my kids is they could take your job, they could never take your education and never ever let them take your self-worth. And so that humble beginnings gives me perspective because I've done some jobs from literally working in the laundry room at a old age home, being a lifeguard, packing trucks at UPS, working at Burger King and McDonald's. And that work ethic and that ethos and the ability to resonate and be able to connect with everyone from the janitor to the chairwoman has been really instrumental in my worldview and I think my business success. So without having that kind of model, at least in your home growing up, how did you first get interested in kind of the business world? Reading a lot getting exposed to my friend's parents as a teenager. I didn't know what a lawyer versus an accountant versus an executive versus a scientist really did. That was some exposure. Obviously going to college expands that perceptual map and and the opportunity set. And I really wanted to run a business. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. It was the Horatio Alger story, right? Rags to riches and being in control of your own destiny. And I remember watching the movie Wall Street when I was coming of age. And there's a line in there where it says, do you want to make $400,000 a year or do you really want to be somebody? And I was like, wait a second, someone can make $400,000? My dad made $18,000. And that really changed my mind. That's where I learned about investment banking and strategy consulting and being an executive in technology. And I started out my career on Wall Street and then moved into strategy consulting and then ultimately into operating roles and now as a venture capitalist. Yeah. So we're going to dive into what you've been doing the last couple of years. But before that, with your experience really at eBay and Shutterfly, would love to hear your biggest takeaways and lessons from running two businesses. So when I joined eBay, it was pretty early on. The company had just gone public and it was the original dot-com boom in 1999 to 2002. I joined eBay in 2001. And we were really creating an entire new industry. There was some e-commerce, but it was at a fixed price. And we were taking what was often just reserved for the Sotheby's and the Christie's and the Butterfields of the world and auction format and bringing it to the masses. 
We were also creating a platform which was leveling the playing field for the mom and pop that they can sell on the same platform with the largest companies in the world and have the same access to customers because eBay as a marketplace was aggregating the demand and giving them the tools to sell their products and services. And what I learned there was how to hyperscale a company, how to use people, process, technology, how do you outthink the competition, how do you iterate on the product and the service, how do you make sure that you're finding that balance in a marketplace between demand and supply, learned a lot about pricing. And I held a number of different roles. I ran mergers and acquisitions. I then started the business to consumer group where I went out and got large companies to sell on the platform, creating back then we called it middleware. Today we call them API so that we could connect into their ERP and their supply chain. So if Walmart's sitting on 500 million units of last year's Palm Pilot at the time, they would be able to sell them onto the platform instead of defacing them and selling them to a liquidator and getting 10 cents on the dollar, they could realize 50 cents on the platform and that would increase supply and the ecosystem. I then went on to run customer acquisition, retention, internet marketing, business development. And one of the things that I did, I brought my statistician team over from when I was running AltaVista to eBay. Now we call those big data groups. And that was so important as I look back in using data and analysis. And because we were so big in the velocity of the marketplace, we had a tremendous amount of data to really inform decisions and to go from A-B testing to experimental design for rapid innovation and product market fit. And that became the underpinning of this fact-based culture that was supported by some of the amazing execs there like Jeff Jordan and Meg Whitman, who came out of BCG and Bain, and I came out of strategy consulting. So it was an incredible environment that we had so many super smart people, and we got to run our own little businesses, and we got a lot of autonomy to do that. In that role, I also became Google's first customer in the world. Having ran AltaVista and competed with them, they were starting to monetize their search, and I became the first customer, and that really changed the trajectory for both Google and for eBay, and then became an innovator in online marketing, built the largest affiliate program in the world, and went on to do over 100 business development deals with the likes of Disney and Home Depot and Dell and Lexmark and others. And then I went on to oversee the charity and the mobile and international efforts, and it was just a fantastic ride. And I really came of age as a executive in that role. And at the end of four years, I was kind of itching to go run my own thing. Meg wasn't going anywhere and Jeff wasn't going anywhere. And I was ready at 33 or so, I thought, to go be a CEO. And I got a call from Jim Clark, who founder of Netscape, Silicon Graphics, WebMD, and he owned 52% of Shutterfly, and they were looking for a new CEO. And I happened to be my high school, college, and graduate school yearbook photographer. Photography was a passion of mine. I knew a lot about e-commerce, and I was ready to kind of spread my wings. And people thought I was crazy leaving a really well-paying, high-profile executive job. At the time, eBay was the killer company. Amazon was much smaller. Google was still smaller. And for me, it just felt absolutely right. I had a clear vision of how to take the company from 103 people with less than 50 million in revenue, with about 8 million in the bank, losing 25, and where the world was going to go in online photography, in the use of digital cameras, and how can people tell their stories, 
and to preserve their memories and to increase the joy and the connectedness with one another through the power of this emerging technology called digital cameras. And so for me, it felt right. I was though the fourth CEO in three years. So people thought it was crazy leaving a safe job. My wife was pregnant with our second child. I was taking a big risk, but she was incredibly encouraging and she was at Bain and Company. And so she was the stable money and I got to kind of go to the next entrepreneurial endeavor. And through that experience, I learned how hard it is to be a CEO. When you're an executive, you kind of know, but you don't know until everything reports to you and the buck stops at your desk. I learned about making sure you had the right team in place. So I think about the right person at the right time with the right skills in the right seat with the right attitude. I thought about strategy and how I was competing with companies like Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, Costco, AOL, Yahoo, Kodak, Fuji, Sony, American Greetings, just to name a few, plus 1,100 other venture-backed companies. And when I joined, we had 1% of the market. And when I left, we had 77% of the market. And I went on to buy 17 of my competitors, including Yahoo Photos and Kodak, American Greening, Sony, Fuji, et cetera. And so I learned a lot about using the balance sheet and organic growth. I learned about building an executive team and how you need different teams at different stages. I learned about taking a company public, which I did 14 months after joining. I was 34 years old and got to take a company public, which was a highlight. I learned about the ups and downs that you're never as good as they say, nor as bad. I had to manage through the 2008 financial crisis. I had to deal when Apple announced they were competing and my stock went down 30% in two minutes. I had to then deal when Instagram was bought by Facebook and the markets didn't understand that one was monetizing through advertising. I was monetizing through physical production. I learned about owning and operating manufacturing and being vertically integrated, expanding globally. And it was an amazing 11 year run. And it gives me so much more perspective, authenticity and empathy as I'm talking to entrepreneurs today when they're seeking to raise capital. I know we're going to talk about different stages of investing in growth companies. Over those 11 years, when you go from a small outfit that's bleeding money to a much larger company that's doing well over that time, can you talk about how do you think about the couple of different phases that you go through and how your role changes at those moments and those phases? Being an entrepreneur is hard, right? You go through the depths of despair to the heights of jubilation. And sometimes those feelings occur in the same day, the same week, or the same month. And what I encourage people to do is set a long range goal, envision what success looks like, and then break them down into manageable chunks. So if you say, look, in 10 years, I believe everyone will have a digital camera in their pocket. Either the thing will keep shrinking or they'll be in a device called an iPhone, but everyone will have a digital camera in their pocket. And the total number of images we're going to take are gonna go up logarithmically. And therefore, that's gonna create problems. How do I manage those photos? How do I sort them? How do I store them? How do I make output from them? How do I tag them? How do I access them as we go from three and a half inch floppy disks to CD-ROMs to hard drives and external terabyte storage devices to cloud? And how do I manage through that? And so anticipating where the world's gonna go and understanding what those adoption curves can look like. And if it's flatter or steeper than you think, what are your backup plans? So have a long range goal 10 years out and then break it down into chunks of what am I gonna do in the next two to three years? 
And what are the people, process, and technology I need to have to be able to achieve those key milestones? And how am I differentiating against the competitors? And how am I identifying my core customer? And what are the features she needs versus the features that are nice to have? And I see a lot of companies, A, try to do way too much. I think focus, focus, focus matters. And then you get the permissionability to kind of expand into adjacent markets and additional services. I think understanding who your customer is and serving them incredibly well. That doesn't mean I didn't let men into Shutterfly, which represented about 22% of customers. But literally when I got there, I changed the font, the color, the positioning, the tone, the voice, the services, the way we go to market, our marketing communications, all to be around women and particularly moms, because I understood that moms were the chief memory officer. She happens to be the chief culinary officer, the chief education officer, the chief medical officer. Moms control not only the household, but 93% of discretionary spending in America. And so I was going to focus my company on my core customer and then understanding how to rapidly iterate. And a lot of companies don't kill things that aren't working fast enough. You got to take it out in the woodshed and bury it nine feet deep because if employees are still working on things that are not ringing the cash register, you're diluting what is one of your precious commodities and assets as a young company. And then just keep executing. The other thing was the ethos because we weren't in such buoyant capital markets that raising capital was really hard. And so because I grew up on welfare and food stamps, I learned never to depend on anyone else. When I got to the company, I said, we are going to get cash flow positive in 12 months. And everyone laughed at me. We were losing money on every transaction. So within six weeks, we went from losing money on the first transaction to actually making money from every customer. In six months, we got to EBITDA positive. And in 14 months, we got to free cash flow. And so that I never had to depend on anyone else. And when I tell my entrepreneurs, the best form of venture capital is free cash flow. You just reinvest in yourselves and you don't get diluted. So some lessons there, Ted, is first of all, know where you're going, break it down into manageable chunks, hire the best and brightest, have focus on doing a few things great, know who your core customer is, iterate rapidly, and move to profitability as quickly as possible. So what point in time did you decide you wanted to step away from running businesses and look more and more at investing? So throughout my career, I've been really fortunate to be able to do both. So I've run M&A in three Fortune 500 companies. I've bought 46 companies and sold five as an operator. I got to do minority equity investments. So for example, at eBay, I led the investment in Mercado Libre. I led the investment in many of our seller tools and our ecosystem. When I was at Windstar, we started $100 million internal corporate venture arm to invest in the first wave of internet companies. I've been an angel investor and an LP in a number of funds. So I've been in around investing and I was an advisor to KKR and Kleiner Perkins and an EIR at Sutter Hill, helped out TPG a lot. And so for me, it wasn't as a hard a transition. And I don't think about, I'm kind of an and guy. Many people are or people. I'm an and guy. I could get excited about fashion, about ed tech, about food. I could get excited about enterprise software. I could get excited about Southeast Asia as well as Latin America. And so for me, I love the intellectual diversity of thinking about multiple things. And for me, it wasn't as bright line between operator and investor because, as I said, at Shutterfly, I used the balance sheet. I did 17 acquisitions. And so thinking about that combination of investing and organic growth. And I actually, 
when I left Shutterfly, I took a little bit of time off and I was headed to be an operator. And I went to meet Masayoshi san because I heard he was raising this $100 billion vision fund. And I was about to start a new job and we needed to raise capital. And when I went to meet him, we had a lovely discussion. He says, but why would you want to put all your eggs in one basket? Come be a founding managing partner. Help me grow this thing on a global basis. You'll get to look at every single fast growing company. And if you don't like it in two or three years, we'll just buy something, let you run it. It'll be fine. And so I, I stepped back and I was reflecting. I said, okay, what's my downside? I get to be part of the founding team of growing something that's never been done before. Just like all of our portfolio companies are disintermediating the establishment, they're truly changing their industries or they're forging new ways. The Vision Fund in many ways did that to venture capital. And I got to be part of the journeys of some amazing entrepreneurs and part of their success. And now as I reflecting back, being an operator makes me a much better investor and being an investor makes me a much better operator. It's kind of like I always encourage my executives reporting to me was sit on one or two outside boards because when you're sitting on the other side of the table, you gain better perspective on what the expectations of a board and outside investors are. And so I've really enjoyed the ability to move through both worlds. So let's get right into this. You're joining Masasan, a $100 billion fund. What was that original disruptive concept with the Vision Fund from your perspective as one of the partners? So Masa has done really well in his career by seeing where the world was going as it relates to technology adoption. Remember, I talked about understanding and, and knowing where the customer is going to go. And that's one of my strong suits is anticipating where consumers are going to go. Masa has had an uncanny ability to think about where technology adoption is going. So he saw the first wave of PC and he started selling productivity software and SoftBank's roots was software bank. And that's where SoftBank comes. And so he saw the PC and then he saw the internet. Then he saw broadband. Then he saw mobile. And his next vision was artificial intelligence was going to be the next big adoptive technology that's going to be disruptive. And so we want to find that next generation of companies using AI as an underpinning to create a competitive moat. For me, one of the things that I talked about with Masa and he agreed and was a big reason why I accepted, I said, I am a capitalist with a capital C, but I also have altruism where if we can help enable companies that are going to do good in the world while we do well as investors, that's a win-win. And Masa had a similar ethos. He called it bringing more smiles and happiness to the world. And so I've been able to use our amazing platform to find and invest and be part of some amazing companies like Memphis Meats, which is growing protein, chicken, pork, beef, duck, in a lab by taking a small quarter size biopsy from the back of an animal and letting those cells reproduce. So you create a chicken cutlet that has the same mouthfeel and the sinew and the fiber and the texture and the taste and the nutritional density without having to slaughter an animal, without having any of the disease and the risks of parasites, without having the impact on global warming or the use of water or grain. And so I've done that with Memphis Meats, with Plenty, the promise of cheaper, better, 
affordable housing with Katera. So not all my investments have met that high bar of sustainability and greater impact, but many have. And so that was one of the things that we saw eye to eye to. For me, I think artificial intelligence is important, but I think about it more in this world of data. And as I said, I created an amazing data group at AltaVista, brought them to eBay, brought that team back to Shutterfly. And now it's part and parcel of great companies of having strong access and use of data. And you got to go from data to analysis, analysis to insight, insight to recommendation, recommendation to action, because we're awash today in data. And so you really have to use it in an intelligent and competitive way. And so for me, it was how to use data, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and technology in a much more consumer-friendly way, both for enterprise and consumer companies, to be able to get faster adoption. And how do you use the differentiation of large pools of capital, but combining that with connections and counsel so that you're providing more than a check to your entrepreneurs. So at the Vision Fund, I've had the pleasure to take, I've done 18 investments, 17 of which we were the largest shareholder. And we take in my group, because many of us are ex-operators in the 15-person group I've created, eight of which are women. Many of us have come out of Facebook or Airbnb or Google or Uber or Shutterfly or eBay or Amazon. We take much more hands-on roles in advising, coaching, and being part of the growth of those companies. You mentioned the scale, and that's from the very beginning was the big eye-opening thing about the first Vision Fund. Where did all this capital come from? Yeah. So in the Vision Fund 1, we had six limited partners. One was SoftBank itself. So SoftBank's a big operating company, spits off a lot of free cash flow. The second was the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia called PIF. The third was the Sovereign Wealth Fund in the UAE called Mubadala. And then we have investments from Qualcomm, Sharp, Foxconn, same company, and Apple. And part of that is historical relationships. Masa had an exclusive to sell the iPhone in Japan, was very close to Steve Jobs. Apple was an investor. Qualcomm's chips are in all of these phones. Foxconn assembles it. Masa owned SoftBank KK, which was our mobile unit, and bought Vodafone. So those long-term relationships and the belief in Masa's ability to create returns led to those investments. And so we raised $100 billion and we deployed about $88 billion of that in Fund 1, held back some for follow-ons, and we've been investing out of Fund 2 since November of 19, so about a year and a quarter now in the second fund. And across the two, we have roughly 120 investments. $100 billion fund, there's never been anything like that before in that kind of size. How did you think about where to put all that capital? Yeah, so I thought about it in stock and flow. So when we got started, there was a stock of what I'll call pre-unicorn and unicorn companies, i.e. companies that are going through hyper growth that can use $100 million to $3 billion of growth capital. And there were 600 of those around the world. And over the course of the last three and a half years, we met with all of them and we ended up making about 90 investments. And now the flow is smaller than that stock because we've been in that milieu for three and a half years. And so fund two is roughly $10 billion. And we've made a number of investments. It's 20 or 25 investments now in that fund. And so one of the things that has been happening, as you know, over the last 10 years, the number of startups has been growing exponentially. Why? 
for a couple of reasons. One, the cost to start a company has come down. When I was in that first wave of internet companies, you had to pay $350,000 to Sun to get a Sun Solaris 360 as a server. Today, I unlock an AWS key with a credit card. To be able to find tech talent was harder back then. Now, there are a lot of engineering programs and we don't just have a narrow focus of it has to be in the US. We all have remote teams across the world, be it in Canada or the Ukraine or China or other places. And so the access to talent is greater. There are more programming languages that are more flexible to what you need. There are more software platforms. So if you're a small business, you could get on Spotify. You don't have to use IBM WebSphere. You don't need an Oracle or an SAP implementation. You could use NetSuite. So there's enterprise software that helps you support the back office and functional stuff. So it's just cheaper to get started. And I think we're back to where you think about Gen Zs and millennials they're not following the footsteps of, say, our parents, where my father-in-law spent 51 years at the same company. They think about going to a startup, getting experience, and then perhaps starting their own company. And then with low interest rates and coordinated liquidity by central banks around the world, money has to chase yield. And so it's chasing growth because you can't put it in negative to 62 basis points in government debt. And so there's access to capital. And then the success of Silicon Valley and the success of the first wave of companies from Cisco and eBay to the second wave of Facebook and Twitter to now the third wave of the DoorDashes and the SoFis and the Airbnbs are leading people to realize that there's money if you go out west, if you will. Remember the old gold rush and money, there's money in plastics. Well, it just happens to be silicon. And so it's that whole ecosystem feeding on itself and there's more and more startups. And so there's gonna be more and more demand for capital. And as one of the leading technology investors in the world, SoftBank's in a great position. How did you think about price discipline when you had that much capital behind you? It's a great question. And there are times where I've heard people say, oh, SoftBank is valuation insensitive. I think there's examples of that. But there are plenty of examples. I could tell you how I passed on Zoom at $6 billion because I thought that was too expensive. Or I passed on Procore. I could keep going on and on at companies that at different points in time seemed expensive. So like any venture capital firm, you're trying to price risk on a daily basis. And when you're in markets that if you look back to just March of last year, the NASDAQ was at 6,600 and now it's at 13,800. So when you're in an up market, Asset prices tend to continue to rise when you have liquidity and low interest rates, they continue to rise. And so you got to price that risk every day. And so valuation discipline, I think, is really important because if you look at all of the academic research, and it doesn't matter if it's a private equity or venture capital, the greatest determinant of your returns with the highest R square is your entry valuation. Some people call that vintage but it is your entry valuation that has the highest R squared. So you want to be disciplined. But in today's world, multiples are expanding quicker than free cash flow or even revenue growth. And so you get greater permissibility to be wrong in your entry valuation in a bull market. The question will be what happens when the market rolls over and ultimately it will. We just don't know when. What that uplift in your valuation is, is it high enough to absorb any of the decrease or compression in multiples? So I think to your question, you have to always be thoughtful of that as you're managing risk and managing your LP's money. I'm curious how you reconcile, this just may be for you, this notion you mentioned earlier of being 
a free cash flow guy as soon as you could at Shutterfly with clearly some of these unicorns are not even yet cash flowing businesses. Yeah. It's a really interesting dichotomy because one, as venture capitalists, the greatest thing we have is pattern recognition, right? It's being able where you're an entrepreneur, you typically only see one asset, you see one industry, you see one set of levers to pull. As venture capitalists with 120 different companies, we get to have pattern recognition over a broader set of data, as well as my own personal experience, having worked for 17 different companies in my career, many of which were hyper growth technology enabled companies. And so I want to be informed by my experience at Shutterfly, but I don't want it to just be the only thing I think about because I think smart businessmen and women are changing their perceptual map on the world based upon new information. And that could be technology adoption, that could be macroeconomics, it could be competitive landscape, it could be consumer sentiment. And so you have to constantly do that. And so it's always a balance when I'm talking to entrepreneurs about go faster, expand into 300 cities or nail it and then scale it in five cities, right? Show profitability, show your gross margin curves, your retention curves, your CAC to LTV curves in a couple cities and then replicate it. My personal ethos is to do that, nail it, then scale it. Because if you've proven it to me in Albuquerque, and in Indianapolis and Cleveland and San Francisco and Boston, now I have permission ability to believe you have the playbook and then you can go rapidly and expand. And many companies kind of got in trouble by not really nailing it and then expanding really quick. Some of them got bailed out because there was tremendous amount of capital on their balance sheet or accessible and others got crushed under the weight of those losses. So there's no right answer and there's no one size fits all, but my preference is come in, have clarity as to how to get unit economic positive. You don't necessarily have to be there, but you know exactly the levers you're gonna pull as the leader to be able to get there and you can articulate that to your investors so that they continue to deliver more capital for your expansion. So you mentioned earlier that you built a team of 15 people and I'm curious, what did this vision fund organization look like? Yeah, there's six or seven of us managing partners around the world. We each have our teams. We have the sectors that we cover. So I oversee consumer and prop tech. And we're a firm and a global firm, and Moss is the head of that. But we all kind of run our own sectors on a daily basis. So my approach to investing is not to be reactive so that someone's raising money and therefore I look at it. I try to take three to four sectors a year and go very deep. So for example, take food. I spent seven months mapping out the entire value chain in food from seed development to planting, to growing, to harvesting, to processing, to how it gets on the shelves in the cold chain to do that, to how retailers called groceries and convenience stores and e-commerce companies pick, pack and ship to how food delivery and prepared meals how consumers consume, what their diet and health needs are, and then where the economic rents are in that value chain, who the incumbents are, who are the startups, what are the strengths and weaknesses, and who do I believe will win? And then I went on a journey of learning. And so I met with over 150 food companies, and I would tell them all, I'm getting smart about this space. I will deploy capital. I don't know when. I don't know if it's going to be in you. Tell me only what you're comfortable telling me. And that way, it informed my worldview. 
And of the 18 investments I did, I think 13 of them were not fundraising when I put the money in. It was because of that relationship. So each of us, Magic Partners, have a different set of experiences, a different span of responsibilities, and a different way to go to market. For me, it's about being thoughtful about the industry first and then deploying capital. That doesn't mean I don't leave the opportunity for serendipity to come in or for me not to have thought about an industry and like, oh, well, I really never thought about that. Now let's go look at how people are using DNA to customize their food. And then we go get smart on that. But for me, it's a, because I spent five and a half years as a strategy consultant, it's more about determining what your strategy and vision is first and then executing against it. I'm curious how you balance your own learning and knowledge to be able to develop the insights with those of your team. Yeah, I'm blessed I have an amazing team. They're demarcated by the characteristics of all the teams I've built in my 30 plus year career. And largely my success has been because of my team success. And that demarcation of qualities is high integrity, intellectually curious, high output, low ego, team oriented, and a growth mindset. And so I have an amazing group of people, well-educated, well-executed, demonstrable success. And any one of them I strongly believe will go on to do great things in their career, but the collective of us. And then to create a culture and environment where, well, I'm the boss, how do you create an environment where we can all discuss with radical candor the merits of an investment? Because smart people can look at the same data set and make different investment decisions. And if you look at, I think, Starbucks, when Howard was raising money, 120 different venture capitalists passed on Starbucks. And I think 88 passed when market Facebook was looking to raise capital, right? So it is part science, but it's largely art as well. And so creating that culture where people can go and have autonomy, but know that there's a team to come back and creating, because I think venture is an apprenticeship business, making sure your younger people are sitting in as board observers, you're explaining to them how you're giving coaching to a CEO, why you're for or against that merger or acquisition, and how do you use your interpretive skills and your operating experience beyond just what the spreadsheet tells you, because sometimes in venture, you just have to believe. And the difference between private equity and venture, I think, is in venture, you have to have an optimistic lens on the world, where private equity is often more of a pessimistic, how do I take cost out? And so making sure people get in the right frame of mind, they have the space to make mistakes, ask questions, learn on the job, and increase their pattern recognition so that they could continue to move up in their investment career. What are some of the best ways you've found to bring out those differing insights across people on your team? So in my career, I've done this with every one of my teams. I usually start, and we do it every year because new people join or leave the team, but I usually take a couple of days off for us to really go deep as individuals. And I'll do some techniques like we'll do Myers-Briggs or we'll do Enneagram. We'll do a timeline where people literally talk about, hi, I was born in Brooklyn, New York. I had two older sisters. My first job was this, the moment I was most proud. And you really go deep on your personal side. I'll do things like amulet bags, like bring the three most important things that are reflective of who you are and what you're proud of. And we go really deep. I'm part of YPO, the Young Presidents Organization. We do this as forums, but it's a way to kind of strip away the veneer. I don't care you went to Brown or you went to Harvard or you went to Princeton or you went to McGill. Who are you? How do you think? What are you here for? What are your fears and your hopes and your dreams? And we get raw really quickly. 
And so we build up that basis of seeing each other beyond whatever box our job description is or what our LinkedIn profile says. And then we appreciate the differences. In my career at Shutterfly, I built an incredibly diverse organization and was blessed to be recognized as one of the 20 best companies to work for at three different times. And at SoftBank, when I came here, I said, I want us to build an investment firm that is reflective of that diversity because the diversity will lead to our success as investors and it will lead to society's success. So I want diversity, not just in gender and race and ethnic background and sexual orientation. Those are absolutes too, but I also want it in differences in job experience and majors in your childhood, your perspective on things. So I try to build a interpersonal relationship. And then to answer your question more specifically, and I did this when I was running M&A as well as you always assign a group or an individual to be the devil's advocate on a deal. And often what I'll do is I'll take the person who's championing the deal and say, okay, you don't get to talk until everyone else talks. And then you have to tell us why we shouldn't do the deal. And it forces them to go from, because we get what's called deal momentum in the business. You fall in love with that because you've gotten to know the entrepreneur, you've researched the business, you really want to do the deal. And so you have to step out of that. It's kind of like if you're the surgeon, you have to be the camera above the surgeon and watch what's going on. So there are different tools and techniques we do in our team to do that. And then I had the pleasure a couple of years ago to sit in on the Supreme Court deliberations. And one of the things that Justice Breyer told me, and I didn't know this, but the court, the youngest members sitting on the bench, they speak first. So every justice has to speak and the most junior first and no justice could speak twice until every justice has spoken once. And so trying to make sure you're hearing all the different points of view and then helping the younger people who might have deference to hierarchy, not care if they disagree with me or anyone else because it's about the idea. And I don't care if the idea again comes from the janitor or the chairwoman, it's about the best ideas. So when you bring all this together, you've got this team, this incredibly thoughtful way of going about investing, having the strategy, what's happened? Like everybody knows the high profile, like the WeWork blow up and things like that. What's actually happened with this huge pool of capital over this period of time? So we don't talk a lot about this, but the fund's doing really well. And we recognize that we were the new kids on the block. We showed up with the fanciest car and the biggest bank account, and that created fear, uncertainty, and doubt within the ecosystem. I personally tried to leverage my long-term personal relationships with other venture capitalists and entrepreneurs to help them understand that we're additive to the ecosystem, not just competitive. That's not a zero-sum game. It's not a winner-take-all. We're going to sit on boards together and co-invest, and other times we're going to compete for term sheets, that's just the co-opetition of what Sand Hill Road and Silicon Valley is about. And WeWork was not a great outcome for us. It's not over, by the way. There's a talented team that's working on a turnaround and trying to fix that company, and they're making some good strides. But what I encourage people to step back is every single venture firm will have losers that go to zero. They'll have some that return 30 cents on the dollar, 50 cents, 80 cents, some that they'll get a one, two, three X, and a couple they're going to get 10, 20, or 30 X. For us as late stage investors, where in fund one, our average investment was $900 million, we're going to have only a handful of 10 or 20 X versus someone putting 2 million in. So for example, I put 
roughly $600 million into DoorDash and got a 17 or 18X. My dear friend Pagemon at Pear put $2 million in and got like a 300X. But the quantum of dollars, we made about $12 billion in profit today on that investment. And so that's the game of venture capital. As you know, it's a portfolio management and a couple of big winners will return the entire fund. And that's no different for us. And so for all of the high profile less exciting outcomes like a WeWork, we have many to shine a positive light on. Our life sciences investments have doing incredibly well. Relay Therapeutics, Veer, 10X, Garden, those have done really well. DoorDash is doing really well. Open Door is doing really well. Compass is about to go public. Coupong is doing really well. Didi in China, Rappi in Latin America, which I led, GoPuff, Uber is now doing really well. And so if you go through our portfolio, we're doing pretty well. And when you think about that on the magnitude of the scale we have on 100 billion, it's even that much more impressive in that short amount of time. Curious how you think about outcomes with something like that, because it is venture investing or late stage venture investing, but I can't imagine anyone was thinking there was a chance you were going to turn 100 billion into a trillion dollars. So where do you think about risk reward on a pool of capital of that kind of scale? So if you look at historical, and again, the data is a little wonky because no one's done 100 billion. When we started, the largest fund, I think, was NEA at the time at about a billion nine. I think they're investing out of their next fund of 3.8 or something now. And then Sequoia has gone on to raise the growth fund and stuff. But if you look at all of the Kauffman Foundation or the NVCSA or the Cornerstone Research, the average fund of a billion or greater returned a 171 gross and a 144 net MOIC. And that's the average. No one wants to be average in life. Often some of us are, right? But you try to be in the top 10% or top 20% in that investment thing. And so if you're looking for funds above a billion and you want to be in the top quartile, then you're looking at something like a 2.3 gross MOIC. And we're doing really well on that relative basis on $100 billion because the law of large numbers would indicate that it's harder to do that. And so when I go into an investment, I generally won't make an investment if I don't think we could get at least a 3x MOIC. And if I target that and we get a 2-2, we're fine. And if we happen to hit a home run like DoorDash and we get a 17 or 18x, that's going to make up for the few that were 0.3 or 1 or 2. And so again, it goes back to portfolio theory. So as you've rolled from fund one into fund two, and you mentioned you go 100 billion, 10 billion, which is still huge in that ecosystem, that's a huge step change function, lower in size. What was the thinking? Yeah, it's largely, again, it's stock and flow and SoftBank's balance sheet is in the strongest position it's been ever with the sale of Sprint to T-Mobile, with the spin out of SBKK, the uh, cell phone company, with the Yahoo Japan spin out, with this impending sale of ARM to NVIDIA, with some monetization in Alibaba stake, the parent company sitting on plenty of capital. Capital's not an issue. And in fact, that led Masa to decide that Fund 2 is a sole LP fund. It's just SoftBank's money. And $10 billion, as you said, is a large amount of money. And so we'll invest in that. And then we'll have another $10 billion and another $10 billion and another $10 billion. And so access to capital in today's world with the strength of the parent company is not a challenge. The challenge is finding great places to deploy that capital at entry valuations that make sense in a market that is fairly jubilant. 
And so I think maintaining the discipline is the harder part, not the access to capital. So when you came in for Fund One and really became this different type of exit strategy and scale that it existed, now a couple of years later, we have a SPAC IPO market that I think just surpassed $100 billion in funds raised just over the last few years. So clearly a potential competitor, and you have six teams, and there are hundreds of teams each trying to do one deal. How has that changed the competitive landscape? To date, not much, but my anticipation is a little bit more. So let me decompose that. We have been beneficiaries largely of the SPAC process, which allows companies to go public perhaps sooner than they might have in a traditional IPO. And so a number of our portfolio companies are in the process of going public via SPAC. The most notable one that has been completed was the Open Door with Jamath Palapatea's SPAC, and that has gone swimmingly well, thankfully. And so that's good for us because, again, we have 120 portfolio companies, and if they have access to more capital and the public markets, then that's a good thing. Over the intermediate term, my anticipation is that companies will now have greater choice if they want to raise a late stage growth round with someone like a SoftBank or they want to tap the public markets. So it is in some way a form of substitution of capital. And that is part and parcel why we have started a SPAC at SoftBank. By the way, every other venture capital firm is in the process if they haven't already done one as well. It's just another arrow in the quiver that gives us the flexibility as we meet companies, what they want to do, stay private and take private capital or go public sooner via SPAC instead of going to someone else because of our strength of our ecosystem, our global perspective, the balance sheet, and then being part of the SoftBank family, they get perhaps greater benefits than just going with a sole SPAC. And so now we have one too in a competitive response to the SPAC market and its potential to be a substitute. So as you do look out, as you're wont to do, about the capital markets over the next couple of years, where do you think this all heads? So none of us have a crystal ball, but I'll give you some hypotheses. I think Janet Yellen and the head of the Fed have indicated strongly to the capital markets that the Fed put is going to be in place i.e. that they're going to backstop liquidity and continue to increase largely the size of our assets on the balance sheet and provide liquidity to the capital markets, particularly during the economic slowdown that the pandemic has created. And that's not just an American-centric view. You look at central banks around the world, and they're all pledging to do roughly the same thing. That will continue to buoy assets and assets in the form of gold, in the form of Bitcoin, in real estate, and in equities. And because we have been in a fairly unusual time where inflation has not really a problem, in fact, disflation is probably a bigger risk than inflation over the last few years, I don't think the Fed's worried about interest rates. And that will continue to allow multiples to expand. It'll allow equities to continue to rise and allow startups to have access to capital because we're in this destructive phase of new companies taking over the leadership position from incumbents. And you look at that in every industry, it is happening. Every industry, Netflix versus Hollywood, Tesla against Detroit, Uber against the taxi and limousine companies, Airbnb against the hotel industry. And so we're seeing it everywhere. And as long as that destructive creation continues to happen, 
I think there's going to be capital to fund the next generation of great startups. I'm curious to get your perspective on the other side of it, which is, you know, now you are, let's call them cooperators or cooperatitioners. You've mentioned you had spent some time as an advisor to KKR. You were an entrepreneur in residence at Sutter Hill. And you've now, over the last couple of years, seen a new fund or new firm or investment firm form from the ashes effectively. What have you learned about what makes the most successful investment managers tick? It's incredibly similar and consistent over time in industry beyond between investment and operating companies. And what do I mean by that? It doesn't matter if you're in a service industry and you're Goldman Sachs or McKinsey, if you're an investment industry and you're Fidelity or Blackstone or SoftBank, or you're creating a company. What you want to do is have a set of true norts, a strong set of values and behaviors. You want to make sure that you recruit well and train well and retain your best and brightest. You want to have KPIs or OKRs or nested objectives in place so that you're measuring progress. You want to be able to fail fast and you want to run a lot of experiments. You want to be able to reward the people who are performing and weed out the people who are in the wrong job at the wrong time. And you want to make sure that you're servicing your customer and you know who that is. As it relates to an investment firm, who are our customers? Well, one, they're our limited partners. They entrust us with their precious capital. The second is it's our portfolio CEOs and the management teams. The third, it's our employees, both our investment staff, as well as the functional and specialists that support and enable us to do what we do every day in the firm. And then it's the communities in which our companies operate in. We have a set of stakeholders that go beyond just returning capital. We have to be thoughtful about our impact to climate and to the earth and to diversity and to shrinking the gap between the haves and the haves nots. And so I just think if you're high integrity, you have a true north, you build an amazing team and you work smart and hard and luck shines upon you, you can continue to build a company that will outlast any individual, but that becomes a franchise and a legacy in of itself. And I admire companies and industries that have been able to do that over a long period of time. Berkshire Hathaway, Blackstone, McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, Accenture. These are companies that have been around for a long, long period of time, and they have adapted to the changing environment. Whereas some companies, large incumbent companies have not been able to adapt as quickly. And some of them have gone out of business. And you see that reflective if you look at the number of, say, Dow 30 companies today that didn't even exist 20 years ago, you see a lot of that in companies. And so in the investment side, you could build a company that can stand a long period of time. And ultimately, that comes down to, do you do your job well, which is you make a outsized return for your investors. So Jeff, you mentioned at the onset of your entry into the SoftBank Vision Fund that Masa had said, well, you could just do this for a couple of years and we're going to have all these companies and you go run a company, you can do whatever you want to do. And in between when we first met and now, you had announced that you will be stepping away. And I'm curious, both the thought process in that and if you have any thoughts of what you'll be doing. You're not alone. My wife's wondering the same thing. So <laughs> you might recall that I said SoftBank's the 17th company that I've worked for. And I'm coming up on four years and I'm reflecting on what I want to do next. And it's been an amazing journey. I learned a lot, made a lot of good friends, hopefully added some impact 
and value to my portfolio companies. And I've had great success financially for the firm and the LPs. And so now I'm going to take a couple months and reflect on, do I want to go back and be a CEO and an operator? Or do I want to start my own fund focused on a little bit earlier stage than where the vision fund is? Both are great opportunities. As I said, I'm an and not an or person, and I'm blessed to have the option to choose which one. And I'm going to take the next few months to do a smooth transition for my portfolio companies, my team, and the firm. And once I make a decision, I'm going to tell my wife, then Ted, then the world. (laughs) That sounds good. So Jeff, you mentioned transition, and even in investment businesses, there's always this succession issue. And even though this is a shorter period of time, I'm curious, how are you approaching handing off the team you've led to whoever will then run at least that component of the vision fund next? So we're still in the process of doing that, but I'll tell you my framework in doing that is we have a lot of talented people in the firm. I have very seasoned people. They've been successful in their careers. And I believe we're going to be able to do that in a really smooth and successful way where my team gets to continue to flourish and SoftBank gets to continue to flourish. So I don't have any concerns about that. It's partly why I gave the firm six months, just like I did when I left after 11 and a half years at Shutterfly. I believe in open, honest, direct, transparent communication. I believe in smooth transitions. And I believe that the relationships you create are invaluable. And so I think more in a relationship view than a transaction view. And so I'm excited for me personally about the next chapter. And I know my team and SoftBank will continue to do amazing things. All right, Jeff, I can't let you go without asking you a few closing questions. So here, let's have at it. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Is there anything beyond work and family? I'll say two. One is I've been a poker player since I'm 13 and enjoy playing poker and had the pleasure and the privilege to serve on Caesars board, which owns the World Series of Poker. And it's something that my friends and I get to do and experience, though COVID has put a little bit of a clamp on that. Online poker with them is not the same as in person and swapping stories and having shared experiences. And the second is I have three teenage boys and we all enjoy video games. So it's either playing Call of Duty or Madden or League of Legends with them. So those are two fun hobbies. And so can you keep up skill-wise with teenagers? They will argue with you. If I wear my glasses, I'm better than they are. So they keep hiding my glasses. (laughs) What's your most important daily habit? Yeah, I'll give you a couple. One is I try to give a hug and get a hug a couple of times a day. And I know that might sound trite or corny, but connecting with the people that matter most in your life and showing them that love is, we can always do more of that, but I try to do that. Second is that most amazing chocolate lab in the world and getting out on taking a walk, which helps me meditate, clear my mind, think about the important things, get a little exercise. And then the third thing I do, not every day, but three or four times, I collect old cars And my middle kid and I love to just go out for a drive. And as a parent, that's the time when he talks to me and opens up and we really connect. And so I am going to miss the days when combustion engines don't exist because the roar of the engine and the conversation are pretty exciting. What's your favorite book? I'm going to give you three again. So one, I grew up in Pittsburgh and came of age from Calvin and Hobbes. I don't know if you've ever read the comic strip, but the complete collections of Calvin and Hobbes is one of them. Second is I love spy novels. I was getting recruited by the CIA coming out of college and it's just something that I always fantasize about being a covert operative. And so I read a lot of 
spy books, but anything by De Silva is fantastic about the Israeli Mossad. And then the third book that for me that I've always loved and read over and over and over again is The Fountainhead. What's your biggest pet peeve? <laughs> I only get one. <laughs> no, you get two or three, just like every other answer. <laughs> so I had to raise myself since I'm 15 and hard work is just part of the ethos. And so I never mind when someone's ignorant about things because I don't know a lot of things. But one of my pet peeves is when people don't have a growth mindset, when they don't take it upon themselves to continuously learn and that laziness kind of sets in. So I'm attracted to people who are always trying to make themselves better. And by being associated around them, you are better for it. And so laziness is a big pet peeve. How about on the investment side, any investment pet peeves? Yeah, there's a couple. Right now, it's, and there are a lot of entrepreneurs that are struggling to raise capital, but I've never seen more access to capital ever before through multiple avenues, be it Techstars or YC or governments or traditional venture capital or angel list or bands of angels. And people think raising capital is their focus. That's not what it's about. It's not about the next up round. It's not about raising capital. For me, it's about how are you building an enduring franchise? How are you building a company that will last? How are you creating a culture that will survive the founder? And so for me, I'll phrase it as there's a little bit of short terminism in people's mentality and thinking. And I get much more excited when an entrepreneur comes in and tells me, 50 years from now, this is what I believe the company will be doing versus in five months from now, I think I could spack the company. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I think it's get an education, really. And that was a little bit from my mom, certainly, but I also have been fortunate. I happened to date the Val Victorian and her family went to college and grad school and I saw the power of the education. And that's my encouragement. I used to go around the country talking to kids that came from humble beginnings about there's money and you could get scholarships. And even if you have to do it online or get a GED, get an education, all the data shows that it tremendously changes your life, not just economically and financially, but from a health and longevity standpoint, from a happiness standpoint. So it's really all about education. And my wife and I spend all of our charitable time in giving and helping young kids have access to food because if you're hungry, you can't learn. And then reading, if you can't read, you can't learn. And it's kind of between three and seven is where we need to intercept to be able to help people be on the right curve. Otherwise, they fall through the cracks. And it's part of why we have such division, I think, in our country today. And I wish our politicians and our society was spending more time talking about how we're going to fix education and provide access to everyone to a great education. And I think national security is vital, but we're spending $835 billion in our defense spending. If we spent 700 and put that 135 a year into education, we could dramatically change our society and the benefit will be immense GDP growth as well. All right. I've got two more for you, one for everyone, and then I'll ask you about mistakes for our premium members. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Yeah, I learned a lot of lessons growing up on the streets of Brooklyn and then raising myself, but, and I'm still struggling to be a great steward of this lesson, but enjoy the journey. Don't just look forward to the destination. I'm always raising the bar for myself and those around me and 
you have to celebrate success a little bit more along the way. Great. Jeff, just super fascinating. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. All right. I got one more for you. And it's a classic. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? So the biggest mistake I made in my professional career is early on not having the subtleties and understanding the politics of different organizations. I'm an incredibly direct person. And sometimes people don't know how to interpret that directness, but it comes from a place of love because I want us to all get better. I want us to succeed. And so the biggest thing that I learned, I still, again, can improve upon this, but is how do you tailor that message so it's received by different people? Because some people you have to sandwich, some people you have to come from the side, others can take it straight on. But making sure that you get your point across in a way that is receivable so that you can achieve your objectives. Great. Jeff, again, thanks so much. Thanks again, Ted. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 